0: welcome back to yet another lecture on the philosophy of america yes i realize this has obviously been a wild and fairly unpredictable ride um my intention was to sort of close after the last uh podcast and leave it at only two lectures um but the fact of the matter is like i keep thinking about it and keep sort of being dissatisfied with what I said there. Um, Not because there's anything that I particularly disagree with, but rather that I think that it doesn't really get at the whole picture, um, or at least the picture as I understand it. Um, And what's more, it's been a rough couple of weeks. Like, obviously the first of these three podcasts aired on the day of the election, the second one two weeks afterward. And now we're sitting about four weeks after the election. It is the first day of December and I'm grading. And that is kind of the central problem here, honestly. Like, if I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, I am extremely frustrated with the fact that I am grading. Um, My students keep turning in answers that I am frustrated by, not because they're wrong or because they don't fulfill the assignment, but because many of my students share this attitude that I find extremely frustrating. Um, And this, I think, Gets at something really important to the identity of America as a nation right now, um, and that's something that I didn't really talk about so much in in my lectures. Like, I was very keen to discuss, you know, what is the central underlying of uh, or the central underlying philosophy of America as a nation assuming that it's always been the same, assuming that, you know, the founders set down some fundamental philosophy and that philosophy has informed us every step of the way. And I think I got quite a few of the the major aspects of that philosophy, um, the sort of underlying assumptions that were there from the beginning. But I very, like, intentionally neglected to talk about the way that our philosophy changed and became something different in our contemporary world. Um, to talk about why America is falling apart requires us not only to talk about, like, what did the founders do wrong, what philosophy informing us, making America distinct and unified, um, what is flawed about that, but also how we've changed and, and what, what is new. Um, so if the last lecture was very much a fairly rigorous attempt to question and interrogate modernism, Um, as this sort of central philosophical tenet underlying the entire American experiment and project, I think it's high time, if not more than high time, to talk about exactly what postmodernism has done to American philosophy and identity. Um, So yeah, we're going to talk about postmodernism. We're going to talk about postmodernism specifically because it is, in my opinion, and I know I'm going to take flack for this, it is in my opinion that postmodernism is more directly responsible for the Trump administration than modernism was. And I can already hear you picking up your keyboards to fling them at my head, because there's no one who is going to be happy about that conclusion. Um, like, I recognize that Republicans and conservatives on the right are going to be absolutely galled at the prospect of me calling them postmodernists, as much as my arguments may, you know, hold up or not, and people on the left are absolutely going to be incensed by the prospect that it is postmodernism and not modernism that is the villain in this particular case. But I hold to this, um, and part of that is because, yes, I am an old-fashioned philosopher trained in modern philosophy, I am a fan of the Enlightenment, I don't make a whole lot of bones about pretending otherwise. Um, and furthermore, like as a scholar of philosophy of language, my sort of stated project all of this time has been how do we communicate with each other, assuming that it's possible because the evidence that it is possible is all around us, like people cooperate all the time. Um, some communication must be possible, um, while postmodernism kind of insists and stresses that it is otherwise, that communication isn't all that possible, isn't all that likely. Um, But I'm already mischaracterizing postmodernism, so we need to take a step back. Um, Suffice it to say, I want this to be I want to present this as a hypothesis. Like, I don't have absolute proof. Obviously, you know, when it comes to dealing with ideologies that are this big and sort of abstract and ethereal and ill defined, like modernism and postmodernism, trying to get at, you know, the one cause underlying an entirely huge movement, a, a huge historical event like the election and, you know, administration of Donald Trump and the sort of swell of populism surrounding that, um, you can't boil it down to one ideological factor. It, it's just not possible. It's unrealistic. The world is incredibly complicated and this particular event was the was the product of a lot of clashing ideologies. Um, like, there's so much to talk about that it could take a dozen more lectures if I, you know, devoted that much time to it, but I won't. Like, this is it, folks. Last lecture on America. I am already doing my research on Sartre, so I should be back to give you a primer on phenomenology and how Sartre fits into that next week in answer to my listener from Belarus, and I've gotten more questions since, so I, have, I am looking forward to talking about German immigration and Heidegger in the weeks to come, um, so do not fret. It might take a while because, again, I am grading. We are entering the, the dark times of the semester, um, but if anything, I suspect that this will be a welcome repose um, as opposed to grading all of the time under the gun. Um, So let's get started, and the first thing I want to talk about is obviously postmodernism. We need to define what we're talking about here. Um, And the one thing about trying to define postmodernism is that postmodernism is kind of, by definition, resistant to definition. Um, Which I know is ridiculous, there are going to be a lot of contradictions sort of all over the place here. But by postmodernism, I mean sort of the philosophical perspective that um, sort of grew up in the 19th century and emerged fully flowered in the 20th Um, and has now come to dominate academia and the media and just culture in general. Um, Like, we are all postmodernists. It is not something that you can avoid or pretend otherwise. We have lost our faith in institutions, and we have lost our faith in some capital T objective truth. Um, I think that is the definitive quality of postmodernism. That's what makes postmodernism postmodernism. And let me stress at first, like, I do not want to cause any, you know, particular confusion Um, I am talking about philosophical postmodernism here, not literary postmodernism. Like, that's a fascinating phenomenon in its own right, and I am much more fond of literary postmodernism than I am of philosophical postmodernism, sort of generally speaking. Um, But, you know, I I get that, like, modernism in literature refers to James Joyce and Virginia Woolf and, you know, the sort of, like, early half of the 20th century where postmodernism refers to, like, Saul Bellow and Nabokov and everything afterwards. Um, that's not what we're talking about here. Certainly the two are connected, but, like, I am trying to focus squarely on philosophical postmodernism. A decreased belief in and increased suspicion of the truth as some capital T objective reality. Um, as well as of institutions that formerly were highly regarded. So postmodernism is defined by people turning away from religion, turning away from nationalism, turning away from even science in many cases. Postmodernism instead emphasizes, again, truth as sort of a collaborative effort. Um, I've heard people describe it as like truth as determined by, um, like, multiple different perspectives, each having a seat at the table, so to speak. Um, It also very much emphasizes um, the opinionated nature of truth as opposed to some objective nature of truth. Um, For postmodernists, if there is a capital T truth, it is not something that we encounter in reality. Um, The various layers and levels of sort of, like, intermediary, Factors make properly interacting with reality impossible. Um, Like you can go back to Kant's noumenal world. You can go to um, like the the ideas of Nietzsche and sort of rejecting eternal truths in the philosophical sense. Um, You can look at like Heidegger and Sartre emphasizing experience and sort of the human condition um, and how each of us has to sort of define our own reality. You can look at the philosophical in Uh, interest in ontology in sort of the study of being and the understanding of what being actually involves um the fact of the matter is for postmodernism, truth is not something that is determined like by god god is just out of this picture altogether um truth is something that is agreed upon if anything if we can even say that there is a truth in any sense um so in that sense no truth um And there is, I need to sort of stress, because I definitely did the same thing for modernism, and I want to be as generous to postmodernism as to modernism. Um, We do need to sort of recognize that there is a difference between, like, proper postmodernism, the sort of philosophically executed postmodernism, the postmodernism that is rigorous and careful, uh, like Husserl talking about it being, you know, some kind of religious conversion, um, versus, on the other hand, what has sort of become popular postmodernism. Like, obviously, what Nietzsche and Husserl and Heidegger and Sartre are talking about in terms of postmodernism is very different from me my random student writing things um, in their discussion board posts um, and sort of adopting a postmodern perspective. Um, but I also want to sort of, like get at exactly what postmodernism leads to like at the same time as we need to stress you know there's good postmodernism and there's bad postmodernism we also need to stress what good postmodernism actually extends to um so in the popular perspective like the two sort of corollaries to there is no capital t truth or rather truth needs to be qualified every time that we talk about it um is this sort of popular assumption that there are two sides to every story, and that everybody's opinion is valuable, unique, and important. Um, These are sort of the corollaries. Like, when I, you know, talk to my students, when my students write things about philosophy, they're often very inclined um, to write things like, you know, God is whatever you want him to be, or um, like, I believe that, but obviously that's not for everybody. Other people may disagree, and that's fine. Um, and there's some really convoluted thinking here. Like a lot of this logic isn't terribly consistent. Some of it is, but it sort of betrays a popular misunderstanding. Um, in the sense that, like, people do not understand their own convictions, have not fought out their own beliefs. So this is not like a jag against my students you know, again, I'm grading, so I'm feeling especially bitter right now, and I apologize if I'm coming off as the crotchety old professor talking about how things used to be, and, you know, things are so bad now, and back in my day, but no, that's, that's kind of, that's not really what I'm going for. Like, throughout history, everybody has always been confused. It is the rare person who has consistent convictions, and when they have consistent convictions, they tend to, you know, fall apart and get especially convoluted the, the more and more they interrogate those convictions. Um, So this is not a dig so much. But I do want to look at the particular contradictions apparent in this sort of blanket popular postmodernism. And first, like, to, to sort of address these two issues, that there are two sides to every story and every opinion is valuable, Um, you can see where they come from in postmodernism. Like, postmodernism is definitely a reaction to the modernist attitude that there is one central truth that governs everybody. Um, And postmodernism increasingly recognized that this frequently overlooked perspectives that were not the dominant voice in the conversation. You know, it's all well and good when Kant says, you know, everybody has dignity, but if he's not willing to extend it to, say, people of color or Native Americans, that's a huge oversight. Um, and that is, you know, what we talked about in the last, in the last lecture. Like, as much as America is built on this idea that all men are created equal, there's a big asterisk there that excludes women, excludes people of color, excludes non-landowners. Like, since when does humanity have that many caveats attached to it? In theory, we are all human, and therefore we all share in Kantian dignity. We all share in Jeffersonian equality. Um, In theory, that's how it should work, but in practice, it doesn't. Um, The reaction to to modernism by postmodernism, on the other hand, is we need to start devaluing people who say, I have the capital T, the one and only, the central objective truth. Um, Instead, we need to turn our attention and listen to the people who, for all of this time, have not had a voice in the conversation. Um, Postmodernists, as a rule, prefer to hear from those who are disenfranchised. Marginalized groups like people of color... people who are poor, people who don't usually have the opportunity to write, people who do not wield political power or have lots of money. Um, Because people who have lots of money, people who wield political power, people who, you know, have been like white dudes for hundreds of years typically have decided the conversation. What they said goes. Um, And there's nothing wrong with prioritizing those sort of disenfranchised voices over the majority, for sure, Um, but I want to stress that that's not necessarily anti-modern. It fixed something that modernists, as a rule, tended to be guilty of, but in theory it still abides by modern ideals, namely that all of us are equal, that all of us have dignity, that all of our voices should be heard. Um, So again, like, the lines here are definitely fuzzy, and I I don't want to sort of get into the whole name-calling business that we'll talk about later, where, you know, like, I'm sort of blanket calling all postmoderns in opposition to all moderns and vice versa. Once again, the boundaries are porous. Um, But the important thing that I want to stress is this two sides to every story idea isn't necessarily true. Like, as much as... Hearing voices that are typically not heard is an important part of this process, an important part of getting at the truth in some objective sense, or whatever approximates that objective sense in so much as understanding the world is better accomplished by listening to many diverse voices from many diverse backgrounds, including and, you know, if anything, prioritizing the people who don't normally get heard, if only because they are heard so frequently. This is a correction that should level the playing field, not tip the balance in one way or another. Um, But the assumption that there are two sides, that there are always two sides, that every truth comes with a corresponding, you know, counter truth. That's where things get dangerous. That's where things go too far, um, as we will talk about. Um, the other side of this, this every opinion is valuable. every opinion matters. This, too, is occasionally pretty dangerous. Like, don't get me wrong, again, the whole priority of postmodernism is let's bring everybody together, let's give people voices who didn't have them before, that is an important part of who we are. But there are people who are just wrong. Like, there as much as you may try and paint truth to sort of exist in this, like, popular, you know, involved place where like many different people's perspectives are welcome and need to be included um there are situations where one answer is best and that's all there is to it um and admittedly like that answer shouldn't be just run with like if the white dude in the room says we should do x the correct answer is not all right everybody do x Um, The correct answer is to make sure that X is the right thing to do by interrogating other people around them and subjecting them to the same careful consideration. Everyone should be doubted, everyone should be considered. That's kind of the the attitude that postmodernism brings about. When you get to the situation where everybody's opinion is valid, everybody's opinion could, you know, give an equally valuable facet of the truth, you get into hot water. To give you an example, there are two essays that I that I think of, especially when I'm talking about these sorts of ideas. Um, one is from George Saunders. He had this great essay collection that I've somehow misplaced called the Brain Dead Megaphone, where he's talking about Dubai. Um, and sort of the construction of Dubai. And while, you know, again, like, the whole political circumstances surrounding that are definitely way out of my purview, and I'm not equipped to talk about it, one thing that I found especially interesting is that Saunders was walking around talking to everybody, like, everybody, everybody, not just the rich oil barons, but also the people working on the ground level, and noticed that everyone was profiting off of this venture. Like, there were people coming into Dubai from all over the world who were otherwise in very poor f- situations and they were getting paid exponentially more than they had ever been paid before. And it was all money that they were like sending home to their families Um, making their lives better in some way. And Saunders kept looking for the downside. Like, this is just a giant playground for rich people. There's gotta be some sort of corruption or, you know, villainy or exploitation going on. And if there was, he simply couldn't find it. Like, at the end of the day, everyone involved was happy to be there. And he said, quite explicitly... You know, every time that he undertakes journalism, he has been taught to look for both sides of the story. Here is the one side. Dubai is this jewel in the desert, this, accompl- this great accomplishment, um, you know, this lavish environment. Where's the downside? Whose backs are being broken to build this? And the answer was nobody's. Everyone is profiting from the lowest guy on the totem pole to the highest. Um he was trained to look for two sides of the story and simply could not find the other side in this case. Um, And that's not to say there wasn't one. Again, like, these things happen, it could just be that it was deeper than we expected and the sordid life or the sordid past of Dubai is more complicated. What I want to emphasize, though, is that it is possible that everything has just been done right. Um, That It is possible that in a given situation, there is one truth. There is one answer. Sometimes corporations check all the boxes. Sometimes people are just doing things for the right reason. Um... I think of, like, the Mr. Rogers documentaries that were a big deal a few years ago, where, like, everybody was sort of interrogating the life and career of Mr. Rogers and suddenly came up with the conclusion that, no, he was really just that decent a guy. Sometimes that happens. Um, Sometimes there aren't two sides of the story. Sometimes you get everybody's opinion together, and they all weirdly agree and we just have to contend and conclude that mr rogers was a decent guy that dubai was a profitable enterprise whatever the case may be whatever the naysayers may believe sometimes that's how it comes down and i know that that's an unpopular thing to say like already i know that like i myself feel like suspicious like wait no that's not right but I think that's what's what I'm trying to get at here. It is so rigorously entrenched in our collective psyche. It is so core to our American philosophy in this day and age that when someone raises the prospect of the alternative, all of us immediately narrow our eyes and are immediately suspicious and want to see the other side. Um, this is who we are. We have all become... Postmodern skeptics, in a way. When presented with a truth, our response is, no, what does the other guy say? Um, there's got to be a downside. There's got to be another side of the coin. Sometimes there just isn't. It's rare, sure, but sometimes it happens. But on the other side, this issue of every opinion is valuable and so on, the the essay that I think of in this case is a, an ethics essay that I'm keen to teach In my ethics class. um, I try and teach it fairly early on in the semester so as to sort of like cure my students as much as possible of their relativistic tendencies, um, which take a lot more effort than that to sort of root out, I think. The essay by Loretta M. Kopelman, Female Genital Circumcision and Conventionalist Ethical Relativism, is a takedown of this idea that every culture's attitudes are valuable and equally valuable. In it, she talks about this one group of practicing Muslims who came out of Africa who practice female genital circumcision, um, and in doing so, mutilation. Um, it is a horrific practice. It deliberately cuts off a woman's ability to achieve orgasm and to experience pleasure during sex. It is extremely dangerous and can literally kill people. Um, it is widely practiced by certain groups. And what Koppelman is arguing is there is literally no defense, no justification for it. Um It is not a Muslim thing or other Muslim nations, especially those that are sort of most typical of Islam, would practice it. Like, you do not see these practices in Iran or Saudi Arabia or, you know, Indonesia, any of these major Muslim countries. Um, It is not it is not supposed to be healthy like most most uh, of the people who defend this practice contend that it has something to do with purity cleanliness health but it is in fact dangerous and there is no indication that it protects women in fact if anything it just hurts them more um it is not based in some ethics it is not shown to like many many up argue that, like, it is to prevent women from becoming sexually tenacious, yet it is shown by Kopelman that that doesn't seem to be the case anyway, and even if it was, why would we want that? Um, The fact of the matter is, Kopelman rigorously attacks every defense presented for this practice and basically comes up with the conclusion that in this case you have a majority white powerful people acting like a minority, defending their culture as a sort of oppressed minority culture, and in the process, rigorously oppressing the women who are subject to this particular practice. In short, Koppelman is saying that the whole point of relativism and postmodernism in the first place was to raise up the voices of the voiceless, to defend those who were not easy to defend, to allow the marginalized to become not marginalized. And instead, relativism in this case, this sort of argument that, oh, well, it's their culture, we can't say one way or the other, we should not be guilty of cultural imperialism sort of oppressing this group of people for their religious practices, her argument is, no, this is an oppressive culture in its own right, and we should absolutely stand up for the idea that women should decide what happens to their own bodies, they should not be subject to this repressive culture and we should absolutely regard this culture this cultural practice as being morally bankrupt and in fact inferior to our own and again this is one of those things that sort of rankles us wait no we don't have the right to say that about anybody else's practices anybody else's ideas but what Kopelman is stressing here is yeah sometimes we do sometimes we have to step up for the practice of the really little guy by opposing the practices of the quasi-little guy. We have to recognize that in some cases, postmodernism is enabling oppressive practices because we are no longer able to condemn them. Um, We can't let that happen, is what she stresses. Just as Saunders is arguing that sometimes it's just good and that's all there is to it, Copelman is arguing sometimes it's just bad and that's all there is to it. Some people are doing the right thing, the capital R right, no need to qualify it, some people also are doing the capital W wrong thing. They are absolutely hurting people unquestionably and indefensibly, and we should not be employing our philosophical outlook, this postmodernism to protect those people. If anything, that is a violation of what postmodernism is supposed to be all about. So, with that in mind, I want to talk about how these problems and how these issues manifest in contemporary American culture. I want to talk about how these sorts of assumptions, these sorts of issues that are identified by George Saunders and by uh, Kopelman, are found in our own culture, propagated by our own people, and enable the sort of horrible situation that we find ourselves in today. Um, And I imagine at this point it's fairly obvious where I'm going. Um, But I definitely want to make it explicit here. Um, So in the last lecture, I spent a fair amount of time talking about the conservative talk radio world um, and how, like, there was this whole swing in the 90s, like, under the defense of being, quote, entertainment, um, Rush Limbaugh and Don Imus and, you know, whole bunches of conservative... Uh, like talking ahead, sort of built their careers first on AM radio and then butting out into television and Fox News and like getting even more groundswell in the 2000s and 2010s. Um, they did so with the sort of protection of free speech, that their voice was valuable and was important. Um, and postmodernism very much approved of this. Um, this very much fell into the category of, I hate what you have to say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that in theory. The problem is the transformation. It was one thing when Rush Limbaugh got in the air and said, I am a conservative person, I have conservative opinions, I am not going to apologize for my conservative opinions, instead I'm just going to present my conservative opinions and you can accept them as you see fit. That's entertainment. That's entertainment. Like, you can do the same thing for the liberal side, like, anyone is allowed to voice their opinions, and if they're popular enough, they should, in theory, have a platform for them. That's not something that we can really dispute very, very cogently, Um, especially as postmoderns. Like, I am not going to sit here and say that Rush Limbaugh is wrong or bad. Um, Again, I don't know him well enough, and I definitely don't know his work well enough to be able to weigh in one way or the other. What I do want to stress and weigh in about is the way that the format changed in the 2000s and the 2010s. It was one thing for an opinion show to be aired as an opinion show. It was another thing for an opinion show to be aired right next to news as though it were also news. Like, there's probably no example more sort of glaringly obvious than the fact that in recent memory, like, in the last year... Um, Tucker Carlson, the famous sort of conservative uh, commentator for Fox News, um, a suit was brought against him, accusing him of, like, false information, spreading misinformation. And the judge threw it out, because, in his words, Tucker Carlson is entertainment, and no rational person would take what he has to say as truth. If that's the case, there are a lot of irrational people in the world today. Like, Tons of them, um, because a lot of people take what Tucker Carlson has to say as seriously as they would take what you know anyone on a respected news uh, show would have to say. Um, Fox News runs dangerously close to propagating misinformation on a fairly regular basis. They have been accused and found guilty of doctoring images, of messing with the actual truth when it comes uh, when it comes to pass, and in fact spreading inflammatory ideas. Tucker Carlson is especially guilty of that. But what the judge is stressing is, this guy is entertainment. He falls under the same defense as Rush Limbaugh. Um, But Tucker Carlson does not present his ideas as opinions. He presents them as fact. And I think that's all the difference. Um, I think that there is a huge distinction between here is my opinion, take it or leave it, And here is the truth, take it or leave it, Um, and stating one's opinion as though it is that objective, that true, presented in the same genre, the same format, the same approach as a news show. And I realize that this means that we're now running very close to accusing, say, John Oliver and John Stewart and Stephen Colbert back in the 2000s of doing the same thing. If they are presenting a, quote, news show that, you know, is in fact satire, aren't they basically running afoul of the same reasoning? Like, are they presenting opinion as news? And in that case, I would argue no, because it is in fact satire. It is in fact poking fun at the, you know at the way that the news is presented, at the way that, like, information is presented, and questioning and challenging the news media. Whereas Carlson and his ilk, like Glenn Beck, like Alex Jones, they present their show without that level of criticism, without that level of critique. Instead, they are taking advantage of their genre, of their the, the appearance of their platform, in order to make their opinions all that more valuable and important and easy to sort of like accept as truth. They are disseminating bad information under the auspices of spreading good information, whereas Stewart and company are disseminating relatively good information under the auspices of spreading bad information. They are presenting what is a dysfunctional news show in an attempt to shed light on what is actually happening. Now, admittedly, John Oliver's Last Week Tonight is a different animal, but even then, there's sort of, like, questions to be had about what exactly is the factuality at stake here. And what I want to stress is that increasingly, that effort at sort of, like, journalistic integrity and factuality being the distinguishing factor separating, say, Jon Stewart from Tucker Carlson from, you know, Stephen Golbert and the people that he is sort of criticizing and parodying, at the end of the day, the way that we distinguish between good and bad, you know, information is by having a source of information that we all agree on, an objective standard. Um, At the end of the day, we all agree X is the truth. Um, How you may interpret X is up to you, but X itself is not to be disputed. But as the contemporary postmodern sort of suspicion of truth has sort of gotten stronger in recent memory, increasingly the effort has been to sort of, like, increasingly there has been pushback, I should say. Um, Increasingly the defenders of people like Tucker Carlson, of Glenn Beck, and of Alex Jones are saying this is the truth. And your, you know, liberally-minded mainstream media is full of nonsense. Um, And obviously, sort of the tipping point on this came in 2016 with the Donald Trump election. And I've used this as an example in several of the lectures, but I I hold to it. Um, At least initially in 2016, this was the result of an equivocation. Um, When... Donald Trump was elected and everybody was sort of going over the results and going over what had happened, like how we got this man into the presidency in the first place, it was pretty rapidly uncovered that there were tons and tons of Russian bots that had been like disseminated all over the Internet, um, dispensing and sort of like reproducing bots misinformation like Pizzagate is the obvious example there was this sort of theory that like Hillary Clinton had a porn dungeon in the basement of a pizzeria and some dude actually busted into the place and they didn't even have a basement Um, but this was a story that was like disseminated and amplified by all of these Russian bots made to sound more legitimate than it is by sheer popularity by sheer volume due to the fact that the internet now prioritized popularity as sort of its algorithmic determinant of what was heard, you could technically mess and sort of like tinker with that algorithm. You could abuse it. You could exploit it. Um, you could disseminate actual bad information, like inform- or a story with literally no basis in fact, And just get it onto people's feeds, get people looking at it, get people to understand it. They could click it, they could hear the whole nonsense spiel sort of supporting it, and at the end of the day they would think that it is every bit as legitimate as something coming from, you know, NBC or CNN or the New York Times or wherever. Um, This was fake news, the liberals claimed. Um, and they argued that the 2016 election was largely the result of this disseminated fake news. Um, all of these Russian bots running around and you know disseminating literally bad information, like literally untrue statements, literally misinformation, in order to sway the results of the election. Donald Trump, on the other hand, started using the term fake news to refer to bias, to especially the liberal bias. Um he would refer to you know the New York Times or CNN especially as being fake news specifically because they were focusing on his negative um qualities like the the whole tape that was released um where he was you know described as bragging about abusing women um that's Different. That's not the same fake news that the liberals were talking about. The liberals were talking about an actual campaign of literal fiction being presented to the populace as though it was fact. Donald Trump was talking about how news agencies use their particular bias to impose a certain view of the world on people. That isn't necessarily the only view that is to be had. And to some degree, that's true. I am not going to pretend that the New York Times or CNN or NBC or CBS or ABC or whoever is not biased. Bias is an intrinsic part to the way that we discuss and sort of present ideas. It is something that we, like, have to deal with. And I think that it is right for postmoderns to call out bias where it appears, to sort of check our bias, to ask us to, you know, like, evaluate and re-examine our biases on a regular basis. There's nothing wrong with that. And I don't have any qualm with the problem of bias. But I do have an issue with equating bias to misinformation. Um, When the New York Times publishes an article, publishes information... They do so with a rigorous fact checking in place. They do it having interviewed people and having, you know, done their research, looked up the statistics, done whatever the case may be. How they interpret that information is, yes, biased, and it is inevitable in the process of delivering any information. But at the end of the day, the root information is true. And when it's not, the New York Times is called out for it. And they print a retraction and they're very sorry about it. And everyone goes home relatively unfazed. Um, And that's not to say that it's not a problem. Like, I was in Boston at the time of the the Boston Marathon bombing. And, you know, there was that big issue where a bunch of the news organizations published that so-and-so was the culprit. And this guy got, like, beat up. Um, on the street and he wasn't guilty at all. They had jumped the gun. They hadn't done their information, their research properly. So it is important that we hold our news organizations accountable for when they screw up. But that's exactly my point. Um, When OAN or Breitbart or any of these Russian bots, like, reported fake news without stressing that it is nonsense, they were essentially engaged in endangering the public. Not just the the public's sort of attitudes and, you know, ideas, um, not just sort of like swaying them to one side of the political spectrum or another, but actually and really endangering people, um, causing people to become unsafe. Um, When you say that there is a porn ring operating out of the basement of a pizzeria, And a guy comes charging in with a machine gun to take out the the porn ring in a pizzeria where nothing of the sort has ever happened. You are endangering not just the shooter's lives, but all the people in the pizzeria. And God knows who else. Um, It is irresponsible. It is immoral. Um, and this is not like, you know, me coming at it from my liberal biased perspective. Like, I grant that that is an issue. And if the liberal media was doing the same thing, I'd call it out, too, like I did with the Boston bombing. Um, but the fact of the matter is there is a world of difference between fake news as the liberals were talking about it in 2016 and fake news as Donald Trump was talking about it. And what's more, by muddying the waters, by committing this equivocation, Donald Trump was in fact doing something really smart. He was taking the argument out of liberal hands. He was defanging it. He was not just defending himself from a liberal media that he was increasingly like, convincing his followers to distrust, but he was also at the same time saying that like, this whole Russian bot thing was overblown. He was basically just, in a typically Donald Trump move, confusing the entire conversation. He was using postmodernism to achieve his ends, in short. Our basic fundamental distrust of a one-sided truth, of a story that has only one interpretation, is something that Donald Trump has consistently used to his advantage. Um... All he has to do is spread misinformation, spread distrust, spread dissension and discord and the news media will just eat itself over this and ultimately damage the reputation of everyone involved which works for Donald Trump because his reputation is already damaged beyond belief and therefore all it can do is hurt everyone around him and not hurt him. Postmodernism has been working for Donald Trump since 2016. That's kind of what I want to stress here. Um, And the sort of flip side to this was inevitable. Like, if Donald Trump is saying news is basically boiling down to opinion, what the New York Times says, what, the, what CNBC says, what CNN says, they are all just attacks on me, they are not reporting the real news, they are just reporting their bias, by saying that news is just opinion, it also elevated opinion to the level of news. Both reflexive act or reflective actions are taking place here. And at the end of the day, what we have in 2020 is a complete confusion and a total lack of faith in our news organizations. And this is one of those things that I'm not sure how I can present it as any more damaging than it actually is. Like, this is damning to our democracy and our republic. Um, If I am, you know, having a Facebook argument with somebody and I say, here is the news, and I post an article from New York Times or CNN or NBC or CBS or heck, even Fox News, and the response is that's not true, here is the truth, and I instead get OAN or Breitbart or something even weirder like some random conspiracy theory video online, if that is not widely assumed to be false, if it is Recognize If the general recognition is, ah, uh, they both have a point, then we're lost. Like, we're doomed. There is no way to get at what is true and what is false at this point. And for conservatives to be empowered to dismiss the truth the news as it is presented to us by independent organizations as much as those independent organizations may have their own biases of their own as much as everybody is sort of in this knee jerk position to dismiss any fact because of where that fact is coming from then we're lost we're completely gone like there's no way to ascertain the truth there's no way to actually hold our government accountable for anything because half of the people who are listening are not going to see it as in fact true or false a conservative organization like the entire conservative world can basically spin their own version of the truth and people will accept it and you can no longer talk to those people as though you share common understandings of what reality is increasingly arguments online are, well, you have a completely different reality than I do and therefore we cannot have a conversation, we cannot come to a conclusion, we cannot come to an agreement. And on some level, yes, this is absolutely bad actors misusing postmodernism to their end, but it is a weakness in postmodernism that they are using to exploit that is there in basically all versions of postmodernism. That's what I want to stress. And that's brings us to the sort of second point here um what many have called identity politics but i've kind of been suspicious of that term um it's one of those that like political correctness seems to be an idea that the left does but that mostly seems to be associated with conservatives calling out the left for them doing it rather than the left actually like willingly accepting that they are doing it it's complicated like to give you an idea when i when I talk about political correctness as my example, I think of, like, one, there there being this ideology that the left is trying to accomplish, namely, let us tailor our speech to be more sympathetic um, and, you know, caring about people who otherwise would, like, possibly be offended by the terminology currently in place, and then the right giving it a name, political correctness, and now it's a name. It's a bad thing. It's political correctness. They're trying to keep us down. Um, And then the left having to respond, yes, we embrace political correctness, the thing that you have tarnished, the name that you have given us. Um, It's a weird sort of dynamic. And I suspect that identity politics falls into the same category. Um, But by identity politics, I mean um, the idea that the person is sort of primary to the beliefs, not the other way around. Um, The single best example I can come up with is one of my students, and this is probably one of, like, the tender points of this whole lecture. I had a student who said, I don't believe in God because I am an atheist. And it was the sort of thing that any good-thinking, logical philosophy professor will tear their skin off because it makes them so uncomfortable. No, you are an atheist because you don't believe in God. That's how beliefs work, and that's how people work. You are not in a category and thus barred from having opinions that disagree with that category. That's not how people work. You are not your category. You are not your ideological nomenclature. Um, Being an atheist, deciding to become an atheist, doesn't mean that you are now committed to following the beliefs of your organization. That's not how it works. It's just not, guys. Um, and I know that on some level, like, there is yet again this sort of American idea that, like, no, that that's right. Like, if you're an atheist, then yeah, you don't believe in God and you're not going to find arguments for the existence of God compelling. No, 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 no. Um, convictions, ideas, ideologies, you do not subscribe to them and are thus responsible to them you choose your ideology, you fall into a category or an ideology because of the convictions that you already have. But increasingly with this sort of identity politics attitude, this idea that like liberals are playing to... You know, groups of people based on these categorizing factors. Um, Liberals appeal to black people because all black people share these ideas and these convictions and so on and so forth. Liberals apply to the gay community because everyone in the gay community has these convictions, these ideas, so on and so forth. That's freaking messed up. People have called out the liberals for this rightly. Um... And while I grant that there is some merit to it, it is certainly pragmatic, it is useful to sort of understand the, the whole, like, uh, demographic in terms of people, like, following certain trends in certain categories, we have sort of reflexively put that on ourselves. And now you do what you do because of your category, not you are put into a category because of the things that you do. Um, We have boiled humanity down into these genres of human, and that's grotesque. That is horrifying. Um, It is a total perversion of what postmodernism is all about, for sure. This is a definite example of bad postmodernism, like bad actors misusing what was intended to be good. Um, But at the same time, it has become powerful. Understanding people in this shorthand fashion, according to their name or their category, is a really easy way to deal with people. Uh, But more importantly, like, to put on my sort of pop psychology hat for a moment, um, we are inclined to box ourselves, I think. Um, We are inclined to think of ourselves in terms of the allegiances that we have formed. I am an atheist, I am, you know, a Christian, I am a Democrat, I am a Republican, Um, I am gay, or I am straight, I am transgendered, or, you know, whatever you sort of describe yourself as, whatever names you give to yourself, whatever sort of components are involved in generating your identity, in a sort of Sartrean bad faith sense, it is easier to sort of just fall in with this crowd, to accept the name and then live up to the name, rather than it is to sort of see whether the name applies to you based on the things that you are in and for yourself. Um, And I know that this is not coming across clearly in all likelihood, because anytime that you get into questions of identity and being, things are going to fall apart in the nomenclature sense fast. What I want to stress is that names are meant to apply to things Not things living up to names. When you say, I am gay and therefore I have to do XYZ, you're doing it wrong. Like, granted, there are good arguments to be made here. Like, if you want to show solidarity with your community, then yes, you should do XYZ. If you are a Democrat because of necessity or because your ideas align with the Democratic Party and you end up voting for a candidate that you don't essentially, at the end of the day, agree with because it is better than the alternative, that's a viable, logical attitude to have, a viable reason for doing what you are doing. But it is not okay to say, I will always vote this way because I will always be a Democrat. Um, it is not okay to sort of define yourself, change yourself based on the name and not instead reevaluate your names based on who you ha- are and who you have become. Um, and what I want to stress about this, because I know that like we've kind of wandered off into the weeds a bit, um One of the things that has become especially significant about the last 10 years of political discourse, um, especially online, is that this identity politics has gone from being sort of like a technique that the left uses to evaluate its demographic, to a way for people to understand their community, to a way that people understand themselves. And as is the case with all of these postmodern techniques, it can also be hijacked. Just as you can understand yourself according to your demographic, your, convi- your community, your category, so to speak, so people can sort of define you by that category in shorthand and thus use it to dismiss you, or for that matter, listen to you more. So in this case, I'm talking about the alt right. Um, and I realize, again, here we are with a name, and the name is messy, and there's obviously, like, lots of valences and sort of dimensions to this name. What I mean in this case is that there is a certain sect of radical conservatives interacting primarily on the internet who have taken as one of their techniques sort of adopting an identity and also sort of propagating identity categories on their enemies, um, One of the major characteristics of the alt-right is that they always present themselves as victims, because according to the postmodern logic of the left and of postmodernism generally across the board, victims are the people we should be listening to more. The marginalized, those who typically have their voices left unheard, these people need to have a seat at the table. We need to go out of our way to listen to their voices because they have been typically drowned out by, you know, straight white dudes doing what straight white dudes do. But the alt-right, because they are Nazis, because they are white supremacists, because they are homophobic, because etc., 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 they have adopted the same mantle. This is the men's rights movement. This is, you know, people who have typically been perceived to be not marginalized, people who have typically had their voices trumpeted from the rooftops, now presenting themselves again as marginalized. We are the victims now that everyone has been going out of their way to listen to those marginalized groups. Now we have become marginalized and now you have to listen to us. That is the argument that many of them are making. So when a, you know, 2010s-flavored neo-Nazi gets a write-up in the, New, in the New Yorker or the New York Times because this is a voice that has been typically unheard of, well, now we have a person who is propagating hate and hateful speech under the auspices of, I am a victim and have been ignored. And there are a lot of assumptions that go into this situation coming about, the alt-right getting as much screen time and face time and sort of mainstreaming as traditionally really marginalized groups like black people or the gay community or other people of color. Um, It's... It requires multiple of the assumptions of the post of the postmodern mindset. On the one hand, it implies again we are supposed to go out of our way to listen to marginalized groups. That's why they're appealing to this marginal to be a marginalized group in the first place, as though like you just had to form to fill out. It also implies that whole assumption that there are two sides to every story, that every person's opinion is valuable. That assumes that a nazi's opinion is valuable as well that assumes that a flat earthers opinion is valuable as well that assumes that an anti-vaxxers opinion is valuable as well that assumes that a murderer's opinion is valuable as well and while i have definitely gone out of my way to state that there is a fundamental dignity to human beings that they are in fact all worthwhile that they are all precious and invaluable even the pedophiles murderers and nazis That is not to say that their opinions are valuable, but because we have conflated the opinion with the person, because now your opinions spring from your identity and not the the other way around, because now you are an atheist and therefore do not believe in God, not you don't believe in God, therefore you are an atheist, now, to uh, to reject the opinions of a group is to reject the group itself. We cannot separate the two. And so postmodernism leads us to this dead end where now people who are, you know, trumping racist nonsense on the internet are given a seat at the table with people who have typically been marginalized and left unheard for reasons that are not their fault. Um, because opinions are things that you have, not things that you decide upon, um... It is not to be held against you when you have a pernicious opinion, when you think that black people are inferior to white people. Um, That's not the same kind of truth as I am transgendered and I am also a human being. That is true on a level that postmodernism and modernism should both recognize. The other is not. There is no evidence and never has been any sufficient evidence to argue that one race or one colored group of people is radically different in their abilities or like their, you know, opinions as any other. And even if they did, they would still have that fundamental dignity to them. Um, At the end of the day, postmodernism is saying we need to listen to Nazis because Nazis are underprivileged when that is simply not true not even from postmodernism's standpoint. Um, And again, the lines here between good postmodernism and bad postmodernism are really blurry. Um, What I want to stress, though, is that it is this thinking that very much got Donald Trump to power in the first place. As much as I have spent a lot of time sort of interrogating modernism, postmodernism is equally culpable here. Um, But it is not something that we are comfortable talking about or admitting. Um, the tools of postmodernism, the tools that have allowed groups that are, were otherwise silenced, groups like women or people of color or uh, the queer community, this, these groups have fought using postmodernism to get a voice, to have a seat at the table, so to speak. But it is a technique that can also be employed by people who are out to just propagate bad behavior. At the end of the day, you cannot distinguish good and evil, true and false, from a pure postmodern perspective without some sense of underlying of truth underlying it. Um, in the process of all this postmodern ideological discussion and this sort of widespread popular adoption of postmodernism, we forgot that the goals of postmodernism in the first place were devised to help people who were at that point being sort of persecuted, being prejudiced against, Um, people who were literally being stepped on by the rest of society in some cases. Um, Instead, now we have the people who want to do the stepping saying, I am sad, I am repressed because I can't step on people. And that's not the same thing. Um, Postmodernism, as a philosophical perspective, needs to have at its root this sort of assumption that people are at the end of the day equal. This assumption that people are at the end of the day valuable and all people. And postmodernism needs to be willing to call out and stomp down on people who are willing to violate that central principle. But when postmodern methodology became sort of more central to postmodernism than postmodernism postmodernism's ideology, when postmodernism as a way of doing philosophy and a way of doing culture and a way of doing discourse sort of ended up being more important than postmodernism as an attitude, as an underlying theory, as a sort of emphasis on this sort of widespread efforts towards real-deal radical equality that's when you lost sight of what postmodernism's goals actually were. Um, And it's hard to say how much either of these sides is postmodernism. On the one hand, it sort of feels weird to say postmodernism has this fundamental ideology and it needs to respect that fundamental ideology when postmodernism is, at the end of the day, largely a rejection of all ideologies. Um, I do not, you know like, neglect the irony of that. Like, I recognize that there's something absurd to that. But I also recognize that it's crucial, um, because without that rudder, without that guiding star, postmodernism, like most philosophical projects, is just a tool, a bludgeon. Um, Postmodernism itself is not going to solve power imbalances and, and inequalities and so on and so forth, obviously, or we wouldn't be in this situation. Um, at the end of the day, postmodernism can be abused, exploited, used by powerful people to achieve their own ends, like Donald Trump sowing dissension and making us all very suspicious of the truth, and thus not able to interrogate and question what he has been doing because we don't believe in an actual factuality to what we will find. Um, that's a problem. Now, the third factor, which is where I'm really going to get into hot water, is the fact that this has kind of been propagated for, at this point, I want to say decades, without question. Um, the third issue here is education. And I say this as an educator. Like, I say this as a professor. I am not in an actual, like pedagogue. I have not studied education. I do not have a master's degree in education. What I can say is that I've spent a lot of time with educators. I am the son and grandson of multiple educators. Um, Like teachers have always been in my family and my friends. Like I am talking about this stuff with people all of the time. Um, My mother had a master's in education. My grandmother taught in inner-city schools in Columbus and helped pioneer um, more inclusive textbooks. Like, our family is really interested in education. We always have been. Um, And I've been stewing in this from the ground up. I've been a substitute teacher at literally every grade level between kindergarten and high school. I've taught college curricula and created my own curriculum from the ground up. I've been in conversations uh, as major upheavals were taking place within a school environment, major changes in the administration, major changes in educational philosophy. I've had these discussions, um, I've had these conversations, and I see these problems. Um, and one of the issues that I see in education today um, is the fact that we are teaching our students to have this same distaste of the truth. Um, And I know that, like, in its most exaggerated forms, you think of, like, sitcom stuff, like on New Girl, where, you know, all the children are, like, supposed to just wander in freely and, you know, learn and sort of interact with the world in their own way. Um, And I don't doubt that there are some merits to that. But if we are in... Going out of our way in schools, in grade schools, and middle schools, and in high schools, to affirm students, like, according to their self-esteem and their personal value, without also checking them against like, capital T truth. Um, if we are willing to pass them without, you know, them having completed the adequate amount of work to, you know, pass the next grade, if we are not willing to teach them critical thinking, not in the sense of, like, we must always criticize what we are told, but in the sense of also being able to see when a good argument is being presented and to recognize the difference between a good and bad argument. Um, If we are teaching students method without, in fact, substance behind that method, um, we are doing everyone a huge disservice. We are bringing about a world where nobody knows what the truth is anymore. Um, And, you know, it's hard to get at any specific culprit in this case. All I can do is sort of hypothesize the cause from the effect. The fact that every year I am seeing literally hundreds of students come to me with an insufficient knowledge of how to even understand the world. Um, And that is no slight against my students, like, that is a slight against the educational system. Not even the teachers, not even any particular ideology within education. Again, I don't know enough about this stuff to be able to get at it. What I can say is that logic is not on the table anymore. Um, And even if, you know... I'm very much getting into hot water... I know that there has been an increased emphasis on STEM learning, science, technology, that stuff. And yeah, I absolutely recognize that we need more scientists, we need more, you know, people associated with technology, people sort of aspiring to more skilled jobs. God knows there are already too many philosophy majors floating around unemployed like I am. Um, God knows that we have more than enough English majors to go around. but I would argue that if we are teaching students to advance technology without also teaching them to evaluate truth, like evaluate morality, evaluate a logical argument, to present their thoughts in a way that is coherent and meaningful, we are preparing them to advance a society that is itself sort of spiritually and morally bankrupt. We are building a world that is faster and smarter, but no better. Um, And I know, again, this is me with my old man stick saying, "Back in my day, or you kids these days, or whatever." And I I recognize that, like, there aren't going to be a whole lot of people, you know, in in defending me. And I, I do not say this without—I say this recognizing that teaching is a fucking hard job, like. I absolutely recognize that. I watched it chew out my family members. I know that some days all you can do is just keep the classroom safe. Like, especially in inner city schools or schools where the parents are not on board with the project. Like, sometimes it is just a battle every day in that classroom to survive and keep everyone alive and relatively well and unhurt. I get that. I totally get that. Um,. But if that's the case, if, if there is some sort of priority that we need to place on education, it can't be on the method. It has to be on the substance. And if we as a culture are, again, with our postmodern assumptions, unwilling to sort of face or confront the fundamental morality that underlies these assumptions, these methodologies, if we are not willing to stake a claim and say, yes, Nazis are bad, then we're dooming, like, not just ourselves, but our generations to follow and our nation itself. Like, as much as I stressed in the last lecture that property and the defense of property was likely to be, you know, the fatal flaw in the modernist philosophy that sort of defined what America is, this one to me is way more dangerous, way more immediate, and way more immediately threatening. Um... This is something that is going to hurt us now. And if we don't fix it, we're not coming back from it. Like, if we insist that postmodernism can exist, that pluralism can exist, without some sort of central tying morality, this pluralistic ideal that, like, everybody should have their voice should be able to speak even if they should not have a platform to have their voice heard. If we are willing to recognize, if we are not willing to recognize that people oppressing others are bad, then there's no way for us to actually build a cogent world where people aren't being oppressed. Um, at the end of the day, the the sort of dualistic worldview that we have now, where like on the right you have all of these people clamoring for Donald Trump and saying that like Joe Biden and the, the Democrats and the liberals across the board just want us to end up in a communist hellhole in the style of Stalinism, while on the other hand you have liberals clamoring that right-wing conservatives want nothing less than fascism, if we can't breach that divide, if we can't have that conversation, if we can't civilly talk about our morality we're doomed, like, on a very fundamental, basic level. If we can't even agree what the news is, what is true about the world, then there is no way that our free Republican democracy can survive. Like, it just can't. Um, At the end of the day, if liberals are, you know, basically counting on numbers to overcome conservatives who are doing the same if their assumption is we don't have to convert anyone we don't have to convince anyone that we are right because convincing is impossible and we will ultimately just fall to fighting anyway then we might as well just set up shop and you know like build a wall around New York City and Los Angeles and all of the liberal urban strongholds declare themselves an independent nation and hope to god that the farmers don't just run over them like that's that's what this comes down to Like, we're talking about a civil war of ideologies, and it's not a civil war that can be solved by, like, persuasion, because we have ceased to believe that persuasion is an effective tool at all. Like, it just isn't, because again, it's not what you believe that defines who you are, it's who you are that defines what you believe. If we continue to believe that that is the case there's no way for us to talk across the, across the aisle anymore. Like, there just isn't. Um, There's, it's just philosophically inconceivable based on our current mindsets. And I see this. Like, I sat down with my students the day of, the week of the election, and I had a long conversation with my, my one class at Montclair especially, and they were very surprisingly articulate and very, like, well-informed. But they also felt very uncomfortable that I was asking them about politics, that I was talking to them about politics. Um, in one case, because one student had like actively been beat up because you know students at her high school were so ideologically opposed to her views. Um, but in another case, just because they hadn't been doing it. They recognized that in order to keep the peace, you just didn't talk about this stuff. And I realized that these students, they're, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old now. Their entire, you know, youth lives, their entire adolescent lives, their entire life as far as, like, being able to participate in the ideological discourse surrounding politics has occurred in the 2010s. Like, they were 14 or 13 or 12 when Gamergate was happening. They were just coming into their own in high school when the Donald Trump election occurred. They have never known a world where people talk about politics, can even disagree about politics in a way that is civil. They don't have a frame of reference for this. Like, when people on Facebook get, you know, angry about their opinions these new students, these upcoming generation, like not even the millennials, I suppose at this point, I don't even know what we're calling them now. Um, they probably have not earned their name yet, I suppose, but they are disengaging. Like when people are yelling and screaming on Facebook about Trump or COVID or conspiracy theories or whatever, their solution is I'm leaving Facebook. Um, And, you know, I can't necessarily fault them for that. It's certainly the right thing to do from their mindset, but we are literally training them to avoid these conversations. We're entering a place where a sort of Victorian uh, prudishness about controversial and uncomfortable issues is going to win the day. And that didn't go well for the Victorians. It's not going to go well for us either. But even more importantly, think of these students think of these people like they're becoming adults and they have been trained to just not engage that their opinions are to be kept to themselves at the same time as we've been insisting that they need to be themselves and that they need to be willing to express themselves and that you know we're emphasizing like their individual identity and their value as a human being but at the same time we're telling them but shut up because otherwise people will be mad at you What kind of message are we sending them? Like, it's going to be one thing when my generation is finally ready to take over the presidency or political discourse. Like, obviously, we've seen, you know, voices on both the the fairly conservative and fairly liberal side of, you know, millennials or Gen Xers, I suppose, um, who are fairly vocal and who are shaking things up, like for better or worse, whatever your thoughts may be. But it's going to be a whole other thing entirely when we have this generation of people who are inequipped to articulate their ideas and therefore to test them, to sort of bring them up and talk about them. Like, more than anything, I feel like my role as a philosophy professor to my students is helping them to just reason about their lives more cogently To be able to look at themselves and put together a consistent and coherent idea of who they are and what they believe. Like, forget Plato and Aristotle and Descartes. Like, they are just the tools by which I achieve this. At the end of the day, I'm trying desperately um, to help an entire generation of students figure themselves out because everyone to this point has told them they are awesome and also don't talk about it. Because it'll make other people uncomfortable. And I don't have, like, an answer here. I don't have a single solitary solution to present as though I've, like, figured it all out. I am presenting to you what I see as a huge problem in our culture. Something intrinsic to American philosophy at this moment. Something fairly new. But also something that is going to define... This generation and the generations to come if we don't do something about it. Um, and on some level, like, what I suggest that we do, um, absolutely, we need to push back against the sort of popular postmodernism that has taken over you know, we need to definitely push back and I see liberals especially pushing back against postmodernism, especially now that it's been hijacked by the right. I see people who are saying, I will not tolerate you if you voted for Trump. I will not tolerate you if you, you know, support the alt-right. I will not tolerate you. You I devalue you and dehumanize you. And on some level, I think that's a step too far. Like, at the end of the day, there's still people, they still vote, and if we shut them se- ourselves off from them, we're just dooming ourselves to continually warring against them for generations to come. But I also recognize that this is indicative of the left sort of looking at itself and saying, what the fuck did postmodernism do to us? And that's the question we should be asking. What did postmodernism do to us? Um, is this as profitable an enterprise as As we originally thought, is this really worthy of being the dominant philosophical perspective for the last 30 years, um, if not longer? And we need to start pushing back against it. And whether that looks like trying to propagate a better postmodernism or reevaluating the ideals at the heart of postmodernism or chucking it out entirely, I don't know. Um, But it's not going to last, not in this stage. We have gotten what we could out of it, and it's time to sort of regroup and reevaluate, um, Because at this point, the method has taken over the ideology. At this point, the mad side of postmodernism is outshouting the sane side of postmodernism. Um, and we need to find a way to sort of adapt the prioritization of people who have been unvoiced um, that postmodernism has been stressing for a hundred years and adapt that to modernism's faith in a truth that we can all agree on, if only to maintain the consistency of postmodernism and only, if only so we can determine effectively who has been marginalized and who has not who is desperately trying to sort of amplify the voices of people whose voices are not being heard, and who is trying to amplify the voices of people who are going to try and stamp out those voices. We need to recognize that there's a world of difference between a transgender person who is trying to speak up for the first time and a neo-Nazi. Um... We need to recognize that there are fundamental values that are non-negotiable, even to postmodernism. And if they are values that we are determining not from some objective truth standpoint, but rather from some popular acknowledgement, that's fine. If we do, by fiat, say that there are certain values that are simply incompatible with the postmodern attitude towards listening to everyone, that's fine too. But I think it's time that we seasoned our discourse with a little more logic. um, That we recognize that not everything that the postmoderns were on about is good, and not everything that the moderns were on about is bad. Um, If we don't do this, if we continue to just live in this chaotic world and let everyone speak out and let everyone be heard and value no opinion above or below another, what we will end up in is a free-for-all largely looking like people fighting against each other, not on internet posts, but for real, in person. And that's not where this was supposed to go. Um, So this was not necessarily a part of the fundamental, original philosophy of America. It is certainly something fundamental to it now. Um, And it's something we desperately need to change. Um, we definitely need to reevaluate and look at the inconsistencies in this sort of popular postmodern outlook and take serious steps to sort of check them, um, to push back against the destructive tendencies of postmodernism. Um, and, you know, if at the end of the day you are looking at this, look like listening to all that I have to say and rejecting it outright, which, again, you know, your prerogative what I challenge you to do is to think through what you do believe. Um, Think through what is important and valuable to you, and to think if it's possible that other people should do the same. I think especially of of Sartre and his existentialism as a form of humanism or the humanism of existentialism the translation frequently varies. Sartre emphasizes that a properly existentialist attitude, and he is very much a postmodern, um, is that not only do you believe what you believe, but you believe that other people should believe that as well. And overwhelmingly, the message I hear from my students is that they believe what they believe, but they also believe that that stops there. That they have no right or ability to convince people of something they don't already believe to change them in short and on some level i think that this whole postmodern experiment paired with like freudian philosophy or psychology is rooted in the psychological community as it is has built a world where we don't want to change and we don't see any reason to change and we don't believe that change is possible and that's nonsense like on a very basic human level that's just Nonsense. People change. Like, look around. It's happening. Um, if they don't change by their own will, the world will change them, and it won't be for the better. Anyway, I realized that this one got real dark. Um, Again, I obviously this is not the first time I've stood on my soapbox and railed against postmodernism and relativism, and it certainly won't be the last. Um, but it will be the last for a little while, because I am definitely turning my attention to phenomenology, and we are going to talk about Sartre, hopefully in two weeks, um, if my schedule allows. Um, so no more American philosophy, thank God. We can turn our attention to something else. Um, but I do hope that this has been, has been illuminating. Um... Like, I hope that my perspective is one that you understand and identify with to some degree. I hope you see the logic in what I'm trying to argue here um, as poorly presented and ill-defended as it may have been. Um, Because it is really important to me. Like, I feel that academia and our culture has very much lost its way, has fallen down this postmodernism hole and can't find its way back out. Um, And at this point, I think that what is good about postmodernism, if we are to preserve it, it has to change. Because again, change, it has to happen. Um, If it doesn't happen by our will, it will happen to us. Um, But start next time. In the meantime, I hope that you honestly stay safe, stay healthy, um, keep listening. There's more ahead, not nearly so doomy and gloomy. um, And I look forward to talking to you in the weeks to come.